0: I've been working on a new book, and it's a book about how to strengthen working relationships. My thought is that rather than leaving the success or not of our working relationships down to luck, we could more actively manage them and give them the best possible chance of flourishing. Now look, I am going somewhere with this, it's just not a straight promo, but in case you're wondering, June 2023 is the pub date. What this means as I write this book is I've been reading a lot around the subject and been listening to podcasts and the like, and I can divide the teachers that I've been kind of learning from into two different camps. One, we can call the mechanics. Let's call these the people who are laying out what to do. And honestly, they're okay. But then there are the storytellers. And these are people who realize that it's stories, not rules, that change people. Esther Perel or Terry Real or Catherine Mannix, I love their wisdom, but I really love how it comes alive because of the stories they weave throughout it. It is an extraordinary thing and it is a learnable thing to know how to tell a good story. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast with brilliant people. Read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, Will Stort is a storyteller and an author, and actually someone who the Times, you know, the fancy British paper, called one of our best journalists of ideas. He's an award-winning author of six critically acclaimed books, including Selfie, How the West Became Self-Obsessed, and The Science of Storytelling. He's also got a new one coming out about status. Will started writing professionally in his twenties, but the seed was planted long before that.
1: I had this like thing blue tacked to my the wall above my bed, and like my dad came in and said, "What's that? You've put into pin to your bed?" And it was a column that I'd read in a newspaper, uh, and um. It was complaining about the tube or like the, the tube in london and for some reason i'd loved this so much i'd pinned it to my um like blue tagged to my uh to, to, the, to the wall above my bed And it, in retrospect it seems like a really strange thing to do but 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 i, I guess it's like looking from outside in it was pretty obvious then that, that that you know writing especially writing nonfiction, was something that i was going to do you know because that i, I was treating this column newspaper column as if it was art
0: Will might have started out writing about London's public transport infrastructure but over his journalistic career he really covered stories from around the world. However in the last decade or so he's gone a little meta.
1: You know I have a particular interest um in kind of the science of storytelling in the in the storytelling brain that that's the kind of idea that's that's really been my focus for the last at least 10 years.
0: We've talked with several guests on the podcast about how the mind works and especially the stories that we tell ourselves. I wanted to get Will's take on his own brain's stories.
1: I, I I've got a lot better at kind of understanding the flaws of the story the brain, you know, wants to tell of us. So, you know, the brain tells us a story not because it's interested in the truth of who you are or the truth of the world, the brain tells a story of who we are in order to kind of motivate us and to get us out there in the world doing human things you know striving overcoming obstacles so so that story is is not often not accurate and actually the story can often work against you you know the brain wants you out there achieving and when you don't achieve that's painful the brain want you know so so i've become much better at kind of standing aside from the story I, i think and and Obviously, it is the conscious experience of the story. You can never kind of free yourself of it. But I think the more you understand what's happening, uh, the more you are able to not allow the story to overwhelm you and to kind of control it.
0: So I'm wondering then, I mean, this capacity to stand outside yourself and notice your own story. In, in some ways, I think of that as one, one version of emotional intelligence, this kind of noticing of yourself and then deciding, hey, is this helpful or is it not helpful? Um, Now, what do you notice the story or the stories you have of you that are most helpful these days? What's the story that's most helpful?
1: Well, I I think, I actually think what's helpful is understanding what's going on that isn't the story. And so the great revelation I had, which fueled my kind of my recent, but the status game is you know i've written a couple two or three books now which focus on the story the conscious experience of life but what's going on under the hood you know what's that subconscious what's going on subconsciously and so the 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 great sort of revelation for me was that subconsciously isn't a story subconscious is a game you know we're playing games all the time and we're playing um you know really i think three games we're playing a survival game where where it's about literally the survival of our, ourselves and our genes. We play connection games. We try to get people to like us and love us and be attracted to us. And, mm. um, but we also play status games. If you think about human groups, any human group, whether it's a, a corporation or a political group or a religion, it's a status game. You know, the, the no. better you play by the rules, the higher you go up. Um, so, 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 and that was the focus of the my book where I focused on the status game in particular, because I felt like it was a book that hadn't yeah. been written yet. Whereas there's lots of books about connection. So, so I think that's been the big, Transformational thing where one of the ways that the the story the brain tells us um, gets us wrong is is, is this is in this idea of happy endings. We believe in the story. We believe in happy endings. We believe if I get X, I'm going to be happy, you know. <laughs> and it's never true because you're not actually living a story. You're playing a game. And right. and, and once you've got X, you want the next. You know, it's that like it never ends. This game never ends. There's no like finishing square on this Monopoly board. It's a status game, and 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 your status you, you can't take your status home with you in a box and go this is my status now it's constantly in flux you know you can go you can be up there at the beginning of a day and down there at the end so that's i think that's made me a lot wiser about about life and and even though you know when you earn status it's joyous still and when you lose status it's painful now i go well it's just the game man it's just a game, <laughs> you know. It hurts, but it's right. just a game, and it will, and and there'll be a new one to play tomorrow. And it's also the, the idea that I think. I think the other thing that. That when we when we kind of experience life as a story we feel like this this story that we're living right now is the only one that matters and actually right. what you when you look at it at life in terms of the game you realize that actually we're playing multiple games at once yeah. um we, we get you know just because one game ends badly the next game might end brilliantly so i, I think understanding that even though life feels like a story is actually a game i think that that's been a great revelation to me
0: if that's a revelation for others how do you help how do you figure out the rules of the game? Well, I think every game
1: has a different set of rules. Um, you know, it's it, c- cultural. We, we, in terms of culture, we talk about social norms. In yeah. every culture has different social norms. Um, you, you know, if you go to Japan and blow your nose, I think it's disgusting. But in, in Beijing, people spit in the street, you know. So it's like everywhere you go, there are different norms. And those norms are rules by which we afford or remove status from people. So, so, so every... Um, every game we play has it has its different sets of rules um you know the podcast game has a certain set of rules sure. you know um so i think every, so I, I think that's true but but i think there are kind of lots of ways that we can you know play the game better and i think one of the major ones is that unbelievable finding really of social psychology which says that status is more valuable than gold to people it's worth more than money you know um, we, we all have to feel of value um and um you know major studies have found time and time again that, that if you give people the option between having more money and a, and a better a more high status job title most people would choose the higher status job title right and if you think about it it makes sense we haven't evolved to crave money because money hasn't been around for long enough we've no. evolved to play status games and money is just one way by which we kind of measure status but the right. great thing about status is that it's free like we have status to give every day and sometimes we're quite mean about giving that out. And actually yeah. we can make we can make everybody around us, we actually have this amazing resource that everybody wants to give yeah. out to people. And you know I, I think it makes everybody around us happier, but also it rebounds onto us because people want to be around us more yeah. if we're being free and easy with the status we're giving out. So our status ends up going up. So I think that's just a really basic, but quite kind of fundamental, yeah. Almost life hack, really. Just that you that you have great stores of this thing. Like,
0: give it, use it, <laughs> use it, give it out. You know, I mean, before we hit record, you and I were talking about designing training because we both have designed training based on some of the books that we've written. And um, I have an acronym around uh, the neuroscience of engagement, and I'm like, so brain five times a second asking, is it safe here or is it dangerous? And I'm like, so for me, four drivers that influence that tribe, expectation, rank, mm-hmm. and autonomy. And you can see a lot of what we're talking about there kind of is entangled in that that four-part acronym. And part of what I say is, you know, if you're the teacher, you need to be designing to be giving away as much authority, or authority and rank as possible. Because the more you can lower your status, the more you raise the status of those around you. And, of course, it differs from person to person. Like, I have a lot of authority and status to give away because I'm tall white educated overeducated, middle-aged dude <laughs> who designed who wrote a book so I've got all that thing so I'm trying to give away as much as possible other people have less but I love that core to action well which is like how do you figure out what to give away tell me about the book you're going to read from
1: so the book I'm going to read from is incognito by um David Eagleman the brilliant neuroscientist and you know, short story writer. I'm just insanely jealous of David Egan because not yeah. only is he a, an incredible scientist, he's also an incredible writer. Like he's re- he wrote a book of short stories called Some um, Adventures. I think it's called Adventures in the Afterlife is the subtitle. Well, this is just I, extraordinary.
0: It's like 41 like, like tales of different ways of coming into the, I haven't read this yet, but I've read about it a number of times. So I'll have to pick that up. Like it's brilliant. Like it's like it's
1: it is brilliant, and it's just like how can a scientist write? It's not fair, you know, to <laughs> about status games. He's at the, he he's just acing two two totally different ones, and that's so unusual. Um, but but yeah. incognito is brilliant. You know, David Eagleman is like one of these scientists that, that has this absolute gift of teaching his teaching his trade in a way that's just completely inspirational. Yeah. And um, incognito is a book I quote again and again and again in, in lots of my books because because he just does such a great job of explaining yep. the, the wonder and amazement of, of this stuff and the passage that i want to read from um talks about the research i, I think the what you know the one piece of research which has been really um important to me and my thinking over the last 10 years and that's the idea that this storytelling brain is just kind of making stuff up like it's okay. uh, like it's like Everything. that voice we have in our heads is an unreliable narrator It's telling us what we you know it's telling us all these stories which which aren't necessarily true and so the bit i'm going to read is discussing some of the research um which has led us to understand this
0: i'm very excited to hear this because it's so true you know we we uh we just weave together all this stuff that the little bit of reality that we notice and turn it into a story with us as a hero at the start in the at the heart of it most often Um, So I'm I'm curious to know what Eagleton has to say. So Will, over to you.
1: Not only do we run alien subroutines, we also justify them. We have ways of retrospectively telling stories about our actions as though the actions were always our idea. As an example at the beginning of this book, I mentioned that thoughts come to us and we take credit for them. I've just had a great idea. Even though our brains have been chewing on a given problem for a long time and eventually served up the final product, we are constantly fabricating and telling stories about the alien processes running under the hood. To bring this sort of fabrication to light, we need only look at another experiment with split brain patients. As we saw earlier, the right and left halves of the brain are similar to each other, but they're not identical. In humans, the left hemisphere, which contains most of the capacity to speak language, can speak about what it is feeling, whereas the right, mute hemisphere can communicate its thoughts only by commanding the left hand to point, reach or write. And this fact opens the door to an experiment regarding the retrospective fabrication of stories. In 1978, researchers Michael Gazzaniga and Joseph Ledoux flashed a picture of a chicken claw to the left hemisphere of a split-brain patient and the picture of a snowy winter scene to his right hemisphere. The patient was then asked to point at cards that represented what he had just seen. His right hand pointed to a card with a chicken, and his left hand pointed to a card with a snow shovel. The experimenters asked him why he was pointing to the shovel. Recall that his left hemisphere, the one with the capacity for language, had information only about a chicken and nothing else. But the left hemisphere, without missing a beat, fabricated a story. Oh, that's simple. The chicken claw goes with the chicken, and you need a shovel to clean out the chicken shed. When one part of the brain makes a choice, other parts can quickly invent a story to explain why. If you show the command walk to the right hemisphere, which is the one without language, the patient will get up and start walking. If you stop him and ask why he's leaving, his left hemisphere, cooking up an answer, will say something like... I was going to get a drink of water. The chicken shovel experiment led Ghazanaga and Adu to conclude that the left hemisphere acts as an interpreter, watching the actions and behaviors of the body and assigning a coherent narrative to these events. And the left hemisphere works this way even in normal intact brains. Hidden programs drive actions, and the left hemisphere makes justifications. This idea of retrospective storytelling suggests that we come to know our own attitudes and emotions at least partially by inferring them from observations of our own behaviour. As Gazzaniga put it, these findings all suggest that the interpretive mechanism of the left hemisphere is always hard at work seeking the meaning of events. It is constantly looking for order and reason even when there is none, which leads it to continually make mistakes. This fabrication is not limited to split brain patients. Your brain, as well, interprets your body's actions and builds a story around them. Psychologists have found that if you hold a pencil between your teeth while you read something, you'll think the material is funnier. That's because the interpretation is influenced by the smile on your face. If you sit up straight instead of slouching, you'll feel happier. The brain assumes that if the mouth and spine are doing that, it must be because of cheerfulness. That's the extract, and that's about these incredible um, experiments they did on what they call split-brain patients, which are patients who's, who had really bad um, epilepsy, and um, uh, and so t- to avoid them having life-threatening procedures, they cut the wiring between their two kind of hemispheres, yeah. and that allowed Ghazanaga and Adu to do these incredible experiments, now famous experiments, that showed that the brain is just making up all these stories. It's watching what we're doing and making up stories to explain it that we believe.
0: And... What's so significant about that for you, Will?
1: I think, as I say, it's the idea that the storytelling brain is this unreliable narrator, that, yeah. that, that we are constantly telling stories about what we're doing, what we're feeling, why we're doing what we're doing Um, that aren't necessarily true. You know, that voice in your head that tells these stories has no direct access mm-hmm. to the true causes of your behavior. It's always making it up. And it's making right. up in a certain direction, too. Assuming that we're psychologically healthy... That voice in your head is a PR. It's a promoter. It, it's, it's, it's boosting you. It's, it's a, telling a heroic story about who you are. It's no. saying, "No, I'm right, and all of you are wrong." So that, so that is revelatory for you know when we're thinking, when we're introspecting, when we're trying to figure out our mistakes that we're making in life. But it's also obviously <laughs> revelatory when we think about other people too, right, right. And, and why they kind of act in, in the ways that they do.
0: So this insight that we're constantly making up our own story. We're constantly authoring our own self and our own story. And assuming psychological health, we we tend to put ourselves, it's it's shining a good light on us. It's making us sound good, look good, be the hero. I guess a two-part question, what are the dangers of this and how do we use this knowledge in a helpful way for us?
1: So firstly, the dangers, are, of course, a myriad. I mean, there are so many dangers, you know, Really, um if we don't understand these fundamental story, you know, I mean, in, in my book, *The Heretics*, which is published as *The Unpersuadables* in America, I, to, I, I talked about the hero-making brain. The brain is a hero maker. That's what yeah. it's doing. It's telling a heroic story about who we are. Again, assuming that we're psychologically healthy, we're not suffering from clinical depression. um So, and, and the danger of that is, of course, is is hubris, is that we constantly think that we're continually think that we're right. We right continually think that other people are wrong and we overestimate our abilities you know so we don't question ourselves doubt ourselves all, all of that stuff and, yeah. and, and, and you know and, and even in terms of things like tribalism you know we're, we're a xenophobic species unfortunately and part of that hero making capacities and just telling positive stories about me is telling stories of positive about us my group about people that i identify with and that manifested in, in, in its most egregious forms There's obviously racism homophobia nationalism all of those ugly things that that are front and center in lots of minds culturally at the moment um so so, so that's that's why it's important like it's really important you know it's really important um the, your second part of your question was you know what can we do
0: how can what was it how can we help how, how do we use this for good yeah <laughs> like yeah I, I want to be a good person i quite like being a, thinking well of myself and thinking i'm vaguely heroic yes and I and i can see the dangers of it as well and you know in your book um, about status you talk about uh, actually your book on selfie you talk about the dangers of overinflated esteem and how that's definitely not all it's cracked up to be um. So, what do I do now with this knowledge? Well, so that I don't become an <laughs> asshole. Okay. So, the,
1: I think the fundamental thing that, that we all have to accept, even though it goes against everything that we feel to be true,
0: yeah. is
1: that we can. It is perfectly possible that we're completely wrong about things that we are absolutely convinced that we're. wrong. In right other people, about.
0: not you and me, but <laughs> other people, for sure. Well,
1: that, well, that's how that's how deep it goes. This stuff, because yeah. you know, the, 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 I think in unpersuadable, as I call it, the king bias, the bias to rule or biases. Then we have a bias which. Makes us believe that we're less biased than other people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so we're quite good at, uh, at nodding our heads. Go, yeah. People are so biased. Um, people are so arrogant. But we, but we're so. But they test this on students and, and even like psychology students. And even after they've learned all this stuff, and they test yeah. them again. They still think that they're immune to this stuff. So yeah. you've got to, you've, you've got to ignore how you feel because when you feel, oh no, I'm not past, I see the truth. I've got all the evidence. That's what. That, that's just your brain yeah. telling you that like, making you feel stuff. You've just got to accept. Um, that, that you may, you really might be wrong about stuff that you, that you are, you know, people smarter than you who know more about these subjects than you think you're wrong, you know, about certain things. So, so you've got to accept that black might be right and white yeah. might be black in terms of the things that you're, you're, you're believing. And then I think practically, I, I think one of the questions we're not very good at asking is why might I be wrong? You know, yeah. we, 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 the brain works. They call it the make sense stopping rule. You know, what we do is when we feel that we're going out into the world looking for evidence to test our ideas, what we're actually doing. Going out into the world looking for evidence that we're right, you know, confirmation bias, yeah, confirmation yeah. bias, exactly. And then, you know, something that's called the make sense stopping rule. That we find one piece of evidence that we're right, our brain goes, Well, that makes sense, and we stop thinking. <laughs> and so, what we're not good at doing, uh, and intelligence is no inoculation, you know, yeah. smart the smartest people are no better, better at this than the, the least smart people, is asking, Why might I be wrong? What is the story? Um, that that I can tell, which shows how I've made this mistake and why I'm wrong. So I think that's that's just a really good kind of practical um, thing that we can do to kind of undermine that inner yeah. you know, PR that we've all got in our heads.
0: What what part of storytelling and this idea that we're often putting ourselves uh, in a positive light is actually helpful for us? I mean, and, I, and I ask this in part, well, because um, and you'll have seen this because you and I have traded emails. At the bottom of my email, I've got this little sign-off signature that says you're awesome and you're doing great. Yes. And that tends to work better in North America than it does in England. A whole bunch of British people are like, What's wrong with you? My mum's like, what's wrong with you? It's embarrassing. <laughs> and I'm like, the thing is though, I get I get regular like weekly, I get emails back saying, Hey, thank you for that. That that was a that was a lovely little boost. I appreciate being seen like that. And so I kind of keep it there, thinking it feels a bit at times. And I just get positive feedback around this is helpful. Um, so I don't, there's a lot of people who don't feel they're being heroic a lot of the time. They feel that they're, they're one down rather than one up or whatever. Um, so how, how does the gift of storytelling, how can it best serve us?
1: As is so often with these things in psychology that, you know, it's functional. We have a storytelling brain for good, for a good reason. And the good reason is that it distracts us from all the misery and despair that is surrounding <laughs> us in reality. Um, you know, most people are optimistic about their futures. They're, they, you know, they 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 feel that they're going to succeed eventually. I mean, most people are. You know, think like this. We, I believe that. You believe that. It's, so, it, it's massively functional the hero making brain. It gets us out of bed in the morning. Um, you know, you could argue it's a philosophical argument, but but uh, but I would argue that you know a certain amount of comforting delusion is is good you you know when when psychologists test um happy people versus uh, mildly depressed people Mm. they find that um the mildly depressed people their predictions about themselves and the future are more accurate than the happy people so happiness is this kind of delusional state but what's wrong with that it's good you know it's good so that's the positives of the hero making brain but i think we should allow ourselves the, the, the the kind of um the kind of luxury allow ourselves the kind of you know the decadence almost of feeling heroic uh, but also temper it with that grown-up wisdom that hang on a minute I, I you know quite often you know i might be wrong here <laughs>
0: yeah i mean this is interesting I and mean, i can see i can guess at least why you've moved your book go through the series around selfie which is around what is self-esteem to storytelling to understanding that we're storytelling uh, animals to then talking about status, which is like, it's not just storytelling. It's we're we're constantly playing this game as well in terms of how we show up and how we rate ourselves relative to the tribe around us, the people around us. Um, it's like each book has grown out of the, the previous one. I'm curious to know, Will, like you're now as wise as you can get on storytelling and status manipulation. How do you manage How do you think about and how do you manage your status?
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, in one sense, I'm doing it poorly, although I am trying to mitigate that at the moment, it, it, in the sense that, in the, you know, at the end of my book, one of the things I recommend is that you play multiple games. You know, I think, yeah. you know, it, it, the, the research is very clear in psychology that the more groups, the more sources of status that you have, the more groups you belong to, and the more sources of status you have, the, the more stable your personality and the, and the less likely you are to enter periods of despair. Um, so, it's, so so I focused my life very much on one, and that's being a writer, you know, yeah. being a storyteller. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to diversify my status game to at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm going through processes process of volunteering for a, a charity back here in the UK, which is something that I would never have thought of doing before I'd done this research. And, uh, you know, and it's, it, it, you know, it's partly selfish, I'll be honest. It's because I feel like um, I need sources of status. I need ways to feel like I'm a valuable individual that don't involve my career, you know, which just feels review selfish. on Amazon going, yeah.
0: you suck, man. I haven't <laughs> even read your book, but you suck. you like,
1: oh. <laughs> Everything's over, yeah. So, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, the other thing is I'm not a parent. And I I, and I know, you know, obviously I, I know that being a parent is a huge source of status for people because, yeah. you know, status isn't about being rich and famous. It's, it, it's, it's about just feeling like you're a valuable person. You have value. Yeah. And, and, and it's always interesting to me, that people it's not that people want to be think of themselves as mums and dads they like to think of themselves as good mums and good dads and that's very human that's the status game that word good is really important mm. we want to feel like we are above average dads and above average mums so, so 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 you know i i don't have, but i don't have that as, as being a non-parent so i am actively at the moment trying to diversify the, the status games that i'm playing in in life
0: this may this may not work as a question Will, but i'm curious to know if you toy with status if that's the right verb in momentary interactions like you and me like you and i are talking through zoom it's the first time we've actually talked in person um we've got some shared stuff that we've done some shared clients and the like i'm curious to know how if at all you thought about status in this interaction I mean
1: I can't say I've, to, I've thought about it in this particular interaction because it's just it's, you know, resigned, like just after me being superior to you I like it <laughs> <laughs> Um but generally speaking uh, yeah. I would say that you know one of the things I, I am mindful of um these days is just wherever you go with with every interaction that you have because you know we are our subconscious is our status obsessed and we have this what you know a scientist called the status detection system in our yeah, constantly yeah. measuring so, so so you're always in the game with every interaction you're in the game so i'm yeah. much better now at i'm much more mindful about how i'm making other people feel even in brief interactions you yeah. know in the supermarket on the street you know i smile i make eye contact i say thank you um you know I, i'm much more mindful about all my interactions now i, yeah. I know that Wherever we go enough, we, we leave a trail of feeling with every yeah. interaction that we have. And it's completely in our power what feeling we leave. And and, and it's easy to say. It's, it's easy to, to transform that trail of feeling that you're leaving behind you.
0: I love that. You know, I I walk up and down my street, and not all the time, but some of the time when I'm remembering this, I'm, I'm trying to catch people's eyes, and I'm just nodding my head. And then if I catch their eyes, I just flick my eyebrows up. It's just like, like that kind of like little recognition and it's amazing how that <laughs> generates a smile and a response from people you can almost see the little rush of chemicals in their brain yeah oh. <laughs> a little hit of hit of being seen and being recognized and being appreciated in some very small way
1: yeah i mean I, i've noticed too like in um when i'm driving I, when you know I, li- I live in the countryside so we with these old roads that were tracks designed for horses and carts so we yeah. constantly as a driver having to pull in and let other cars pass and i've you know i've noticed that when that when the person waves at you you feel really good yeah. and then and, and so and when they don't it's like oh you know i get oh you know, where's my wave and, and i've also noticed that like i don't know if you do this where you come from but it, but it, was, uh, it was um one way of saying thanks is when the car pulls in front of you, they just flash their hazards on to give you a little flick.
0: Oh, that's nice. And I, and I... love that.
1: And it's like, yeah. a, and, you know, I love it. And I always do it now. I always give them a little <laughs> flash. And and before I wouldn't have taken it seriously, but it is, it's like, it's just that little moment of,
0: yeah.
1: and I can recognize it now. It's status. It's somebody saying, you, you, yeah. you know, you're a good person in my eyes because you've yeah. done that thing. And yeah. I, I think before the little wave, the little flash of the hazards would have felt a bit, like it didn't really matter to me but now i, I know it really does so it's so similar to you raising your eyebrows like you know i know yeah. i cycle around as well i'm always on my my bike and um you know i pull in for cars if they're struggling to get past me and 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 they give me a little flash of the hazards and it's like oh and they're happy and i'm happy and yeah. you know and it's it's those little moments that i wouldn't have taken seriously before doing this research that i now take really seriously because they change the temperature of your day
0: yeah it's a nice way to put it you know we've been talking about storytelling and how our brains tell stories and about status and about just the sense of self. Um, and it makes it feel like we're talking very much about individuals and individualism. You know, at the start of Selfie, you have a quote from Anne Rand mm. kind of going, we sucks, man. It's all about the I. And I feel like it was there to make a, make a point. Uh, you know, even with all this talk about me and I and who I am, what's the connection to the, the we of it all?
1: Um, well, it's that we're a tribal species. That's what Ayn Rand didn't get. You know, we, we are a tribal species. And we, so, so the, the, there is no such thing as the pure I. I mean, in, in selfie, I talk about um, this concept, which is known as the, the mirror self. And the mirror self is I am not who I think I am. I am who I think other people think I am. <laughs> so to figure out who we are, we look at how other people are responding to us, especially other people in our groups and tribes. And that's why it's so kind of can be so crushing when we look at other the people around us and that we, we feel less than. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so so you cannot separate the I from the we, and that's what the that's what Ayn Rand got so profoundly wrong. Yeah. We are we are fundamentally a social species. I mean, in the West we're individualists, but but we are still you know, tribal, you know, it's, it's just a, a slightly different, we're slightly more eye focused than they are in places like East Asia. Yes. Um, and that has major ramifications in certain ways, but, but, but we are all, all humans are mm-hmm. tribal. We are all, we all exist in the context of the group yeah. and, and you can't eradicate that from the human
0: mind. Well, I've loved this conversation. Thank you. Um, a final question I'd love to ask, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me?
1: Well, that's a very good question. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said? Um, So we've talked about um, the kind of dangers that the storytelling brain, you know, the flaws of it, the dangers it can lead to. And I I suppose, um, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about recently is that, yes, it's a hero maker but it's also remarkably liable to turn on us even if we're not clinically depressed even yeah. if we're not um you know mentally ill or you know have a have serious psychological issues um yeah. that's that, that hero maker can also be a kind of demon maker it can yeah. it, it can turn on us and you know e- evolutionarily speaking you know possibly that's because as, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, the functional um, use of the storytelling brain is that, is that it's to motivate us, is to get right. us moving on. So when we're making mistakes, it becomes a drill sergeant, <laughs> and so you know, and, and it wants to kind of it either wants to kind of spank us and kick us into into, into a higher level of performance, yeah. or really? it's um, a protective thing where um, in in the status game I write about this. It's this mode called self subordination where um the status game you know the game of life becomes too harsh and too dangerous and the brain wants to move take us to the back of the cave to remove us from that competition right. so i think the thing that we haven't that hasn't yet been said is to yes um beware of the hubris of this of that hero-making brain but also beware of the of of, of its capacity to turn on you because it's, right. because that's also not when it's telling you you're useless and pathetic and a failure that's also not to be believed
0: Do you remember Will saying, play multiple games? I love that. This feels like an extraordinarily rich piece of guidance. And not just for the point he's making, which is, you know, find yourself in different roles and different conversations and different settings so your sense of self remains more fluid and more relative rather than brittle and unyielding. If you do that in that way, you become more aware of your status and better able to use it for good, to dial it up or to turn it down as required. But play multiple games. I just think that as a call to a good life, a call to a more alive life, that is perfect. If you like my conversation with Will, I've got two other interviews I could recommend for you. One is How to Value Yourself by Stacey Vanek-Smith. Wonderful conversation. And then truly one of my favorite interviews from this whole series so far, Matthew Barzen, um, one stage the American ambassador to the UK, super eloquent, and he's written a book about power and that interview is called What to Do with Power. I thought that's just great because for me, it was talking about what do you do if you have power, if you have status, if you have privilege, how do you give it away? For more on Will, um, the place to go really is his website. That's where you'll find most of his stuff, willstore.com, W I L L. Store is spelled S T O R R. So, willstore.com. And thank you for listening. Love that you're a listener. Love that you listen to the interviews. Love that you've given the podcast some love as a rating or a review if you have done that love it if you have a particular interview or sex that you've gone this person needs to listen to this interview because recommendations and your word of mouth is one of the richest ways we get to grow as a listening group thank you you're awesome and you're doing great